This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Shane Jensen in here this morning. Eric Bradlow in here this morning. Cade Massey in here this morning. Audie Weiner is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. Please do. Give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 7866 or hit us up on email businessradio at cirrusxm.com or catch us on Twitter at WMoneyBall is the account up there. You guys can send us questions, complaints, observations, over-under suggestions. We are into our over-under segment now that we're in the off-season, the football off-season that is. Of course, Dr. Lau Kane is joining us. He specializes in orthoscopy. I can't even say that right. He's an orthopedic surgeon, sports-related injuries. Um, we're talking to him. He's down there in Birmingham. Not sure where he is this morning, but Dr. Kane, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm in Birmingham. You are in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. All right, Dr. Kane, we we want to hear about what you got going on and what view you have on the world of sports medicine these days. We talk to people from around sports around the world, and we have been intrigued by what's been going on in sports science the last few years. It feels like one of the real frontiers. And for if you're looking for an advantage, one of the real advantages. And we talk about injury prevention, and that's being kind of the uh, a, a thing that teams have struggled with, but they realize that they can figure it out. It'll be helpful for the athletes and the organization. So we love talking to people like you. Can you tell us how you got going this direction in the business? You went, How soon did you know in your medical career that you wanted to do sports-related stuff? Well, I think, you know, interestingly, I started out as an athlete like most of us and, and played most sports through high school and was a fan as well and loved, you know, watching sports and keeping up with certain teams. And I think, you know, orthopedic sports medicine kind of evolved in the 1970s. And and when I was, I'm in my early 50s now, and so that was kind of when I was a kid and growing up. And I started seeing, you know, what doctors were doing in terms of taking care of athletes and started hearing about it. And when I was in medical school, it was kind of a natural evolution of, of taking your interest in sports and your interest in, in athletes and teams and using your medical background. And, and I'm also an engineer by, by background. So using that uh-huh. to to kind of apply to, to the science of taking care of athletes. And I had the opportunity soon after training to work with Dr. James Andrews uh, here in Birmingham for a year as a, as a specialty training in sports medicine. And, and doing that, I really saw the total package of what it takes to be a sports medicine doctor. It, it really, uh, you know, it was kind of my deal, and it got me into the, to the, to the job I'm in now, and, and it's really been a gratifying experience. Well, so even folks who aren't medically trained know of James Andrews, of course, through the Tommy John surgery sure. and how, how well he's known for that. How, how did you make that step? And then when you say, I saw what's involved with sports medicine, the whole package, what, what is involved? Like, what's different from what you do compared to someone who, another orthopedic surgeon? Well, kind of, kind of broadly, sports medicine is a specialty field in, in orthopedic surgery that takes care of athletes and active people. And what I saw was, was that, that as I was going through my training in orthopedics, you do a lot of different organizational things. You work in trauma, you work in joint replacement, you work with pediatrics and spine surgery in different fields. Sports medicine is unique in that you actually spend a lot of time working with teams and athletes and trainers and you know people taking care of, of athletic type individuals. And, and when I spent time with Dr. Andrews, I had the opportunity to interview with him to be a, a, a what's called a fellow, which is a, 
a year of specialty training after your orthopedic training to learn how to be a sports medicine doctor. And, and during that time, you really see that, that it's more than just orthopedic surgery. It's more than just, you know, taking care of a knee or an elbow. It's really about communication with the athlete, communication with the athletic trainer, with the coaches, the parents, the agents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what's made James Andrews so special over the years is that he has a unique way of making all those people feel comfortable. And, you know, at the end of the day, they know that they're going to get the best care possible. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how, you know, we talk about analytics a lot on this show, and we end up talking, you know, details of the analytics, but we also, again and again, are reminded how important the communication of those analytics are. And you're talking about an analogy there in medicine where, yeah, we can fix the knee, we can fix the elbow, but you got to make sure everyone's on the same page, and everyone is a big team around the individual athlete. Tell us about the advances in in your specialty, you know, compared to early on, somebody blows it early on being we're all, you know, most of us here early 50s as well. So we're kind of coming from the same place. A guy blows a knee in high school back then and his athletic career is over, essentially. And now guys are like they're not even dropping in the draft after missing their senior year because of a blown knee. How much of that it comes from the technology of the operate the procedure itself versus everything you've learned about how to recover and recuperate from that? Well, I think it's a great point. It really has been an amazing uh, change in the last, say, 30 years, you know, from when we were in high school to where we are now. And, and I think some of that surgical, surgical technique, some of it's the understanding of, you know, how to fix an ACL or labrum or something and make it more more stable and stronger. But a lot of it comes from just the process of rehabilitation and, and how we treat athletes after surgery. You know, back in the when ACLs first started being performed back in the late 1970s, the theory was that, that you had to immobilize the joint with a cast for six or eight weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and that really put you behind the eight ball, and you had a hard time getting your mobility back, and you had no muscle, and, you know, the rehab was a year, and even then most people didn't get back all the way completely normal. So, you know, rehabilitation changed probably in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and people started going to more aggressive, immediate rehab right after surgery. You know, I think a lot of the, the programs that we have now, you know, some of the things in physical therapy, like there's a new process we call BFR, blood, blood flow restriction therapy, where you can really make a muscle grow in hypertrophy quickly by putting a light tourniquet on the leg. It came from the military, and it's been a really huge advancement in the last couple of years in terms of progressing strength after a surgery. And, and so I think little things like that that come out allow us to, to move faster, to let the body heal quicker, to get the muscle tone back faster and let these athletes return at a quicker rate. So real quickly, clarification on that. That was rather counterintuitive, obviously. You're saying by restricting blood flow to the area, you actually accelerate the recovery process. Yeah, it's definitely counterintuitive. I think when we first saw it, all of us thought this was crazy. But it came through some some background in in military uh, training and and advancements. And and what what we found was that by by allowing the, the blood flow into a leg, for instance, doing a leg exercise, so you, you allow the blood flow in, but you restrict the blood flow back out. It's kind of like if you squeeze uh-huh. your index finger and it turns a little purple and red. Um, that blood flow engorgement helps the muscle to hypertrophy and changes the chemical response, and you actually get better muscle strengthening than you do just with normal workout. So you can do, say, a leg press with 20 pounds instead of 200 pounds and get the same kind of muscle bulk and hypertrophy without stressing the joint as much. So it's a, it's a nice way early on after surgery to, to grow muscle bulk and tone without stressing the joint that's, that's been that's been operated on. T- terrifically interesting, and that kind of innovation is is really it's a neat part of the process. I, I'm struck by how you described the change from the 70s into the, into the 80s and 90s on on active recovery. Essentially, you go from immobilizing a joint in a cast for 
six or eight weeks to, no, no, we want that thing moving straight away. Do you have any, I don't know if you were, you probably weren't yet in medicine at that point, but can you describe that innovation process? That's such a fundamental shift from like all of time to, no, we're going to do this differently. We're going to do it exactly the opposite of what we've ever done. And again, how... How quickly was that adopted sort of across the field? And was it a few key communicators like so somebody like James Andrews, maybe James Andrews himself, that really kind of pushed this, like the pushes these innovations? Well, it was a slow process, as you can imagine, because the people that were giants in the field and people that were respected believed in the old school technique. And so, you know, anytime something new comes out, everybody's a little skeptical. Um, you know, I'll give you a good example. One of the things that used to happen back in the 70s was that Anybody that tore their medial clavicular ligament, their MCL of their knee, which is really common in football when a lineman gets rolled into or somebody gets cut from the side, MCL is probably the, the most common knee injury in football. Those were thought to require surgery. And so, you know, the big big sports medicine doctors like Jack Houston and Don O'Donohue and the guys back in the day that were well-known in the 60s and 70s all fixed those, put them in a cast for six weeks, and it took, you know, six to eight months to get back to play. And, and really what happened is you started having some noncompliant patients and some athletic trainers and people that, that, that didn't, you know, something happened, for instance, they got an MCL strain and they couldn't see the doctor for a while, or, or the trainer noticed that maybe they're getting better. And so they started kind of just by being noncompliant in some cases, figuring out that this didn't have to have surgery, and, and patients started requesting, you know, can we see if this heals without surgery? And, and it really became kind of a slow paradigm shift by, by certain doctors and certain athletic trainers noticing that these things were sticking down and healing well without having to go through the long process of surgery, but it really wasn't adopted over several years because it took, you know, it took several uh, iterations. And it took the right people like Dr. Andrews seeing these these changes and really reporting them and doing research and publishing studies and really making it official before everybody really adopted it. Ter- terrifically interesting. That, that innovation via noncompliance is just fantastic. <laughs> no doubt. So we're talking to Dr. Lyle Kane. He's orthopedic surgeon down in Birmingham. He works with the famed Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's also team physician to the University of Alabama. So, Dr. Kane, this is Eric Brado. I want to ask you a question related to that since we're also an analytics show. Um, can you do randomized a B like testing in your field, like you know, uh, you know, if since I'm in the field of marketing and statistics, you know, if we want to see if an ad works, we just randomize populations to see one ad versus another, no problem. But if someone wants to test a hypothesis that restricting blood flow, let's say, actually helps things, can you run? I mean, is it can you ethically or legally run randomized tests where some people get the old procedure, some people might get a new one, and see what happens? Oh, you certainly can, but it's it's difficult in certain patient populations. So. You know, when it's something like BFR, blood flow restriction therapy, that's pretty simple because nobody knows exactly what the the benefits are versus the the potential contraindications. I think for for procedures like, say, an ACL reconstruction, it's really difficult to randomize people because ultimately most of us have a, a pretty strong bias that one procedure works better than another, and to take an elite athlete and put him in the in the process or randomize them into the process where they may get something that we we initially think is inferior is really difficult to do. And so most of those randomized studies, even though those are definitely the best statistical studies to do in terms of figuring out the outcomes, are done in in lower-level athletes, you know, in in smaller populations. They're a lot done in in, uh, controlled populations, I would say, which is, you know, a lot of socialized medicine systems like Canada and places where they can 
where they have more control over the patient population. It, it's possible in the U.S., but in certain situations it's very difficult because of the patient demands. Well, could you give us also a sense? You just brought up something, Dr. Kane, which is fascinating to me, which is this idea of what you might do on an elite athlete versus someone else. So, you know, I was a good athlete, but certainly similar to you, maybe you were better. I know it's not, I was not elite, but I had a rotator cuff surgery uh, done in Mass General when I was in my early 20s, and this was the surgeon for the Celtics. And they said, if you want to continue playing sports, this is the surgery you have to have. But you're not an elite athlete. If you had been an elite athlete, we might have chosen something else, which might have been higher risk. How do you think about that, tailoring the surgery to the eliteness of the athlete? Well, I think that's really the gist of sports medicine, is understanding, as a surgeon, the demands of the individual patient. And so having a knee injury, say, in a, in a college football player that's going to be an NFL player, is very different than having a knee injury in a 40-year-old uh, gentleman that's trying to run and, and participate in triathlon. So... Uh, the demands of the body are so different that sometimes the surgical procedure is totally different. And I think that's that's one thing that really separates uh, doctors that take care of teams in sports medicine from a general orthopedic surgeon is that you know, we, we get to follow the patient all the way through the process. We see him to return to the field. We talk to the athletic trainer. We know the guys that are struggling. We know how long it takes as opposed to just seeing them every, every couple of months in the office. And so mm-hmm. I think it's a, mm-hmm. you have a much closer relationship with the players and because of that, you understand their needs, their desires. And, and really, for some of these guys, a college football player, for instance, you know, if they have a knee injury that takes them out for three months, it can be life-changing because they may miss a whole season. They may right. not get drafted. It may change their entire life. Whereas if I have a knee injury, I'm out for three months. It's a really big nuisance and hassle, but it's not really going to change my life long term. Yep. Since Dr. Kenneth Sarek Bradlow again, since we're in the world of counterintuitive findings, let me ask you another one. Maybe it is or isn't. Um, Athletes can train better. Athletes are bigger and stronger. Therefore, on the one hand, you could argue they play faster. It leads to more injuries. On the other hand, you could say the body's more prepared. Are injury rates going up and down as people get faster and stronger, or are people's bodies getting stronger and they're competing faster and therefore injury rates are going up? Which one are we seeing? Well, I think it depends on the sport you're talking about, but I think in general injury rates are probably going up primarily because of of the, the culture in the U.S. and around the world really is early single sport specialization. So no matter how much you train, no matter how strong you are, no matter how well conditioned your body is, if you're doing the same movement in the same sport over and over again, you know, for 11, 12 months out of the year, there tend to be a lot of overuse injuries that we see. And that's true whether you're a marathoner or whether you're a baseball pitcher. And so I think, you know, what's happened is is 30 years ago, we weren't as conditioned. We didn't know about, you know, being in shape, say, to play golf, for instance but we were only playing golf three or four months out of the year or only playing baseball three or four months out of the year, and we had the other seven or eight, nine months to, to recover. I think sports specialization and overuse has increased injury rates in most of the sports that we see, particularly baseball, but I think it's true across the, the entire spectrum because of the fact that we're using the same joints and same movements over and over. So you end up prescribing what we hear from other people, and that is some kind of cross-training and from, from early on, very much against the way many of the big high schools are preparing their athletes. Yes, I, I, we, we believe, and we've done a lot of research on this, and we, we believe that you know, as a, as a child, as an adolescent, even as a high school athlete, it's probably best for your body to play multiple sports or cross-train. The, the people that tend to have the most trouble are the ones that decide in second or third grade they're a baseball player and they do nothing but play baseball mm-hmm. 10, 11 months out of the year for, until they're in high school. Very, very few of those people actually make it through the system. Mm. They usually get burned out or hurt before they get to high school. And you know, our, our data shows that the number of throws are important, the number of repetitions are important. And I think it's really something that's, that's understood now by the medical community, but, but it's a competitive situation. As a parent, right. 
Right. It's very difficult to take your kid out of travel baseball because you feel like you're not giving them the maximum opportunity. The reality is you're probably causing some problems down the road that may keep them from succeeding. Wow. So we're talking to Dr. Lyle Kane, orthopedic surgeon with the Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's located in Birmingham. Dr. Kane, you're also a team physician for the University of Alabama. Can you talk to us about how that, what that looks like and what that experience has been like for you? And I suspect that when we think about Alabama, of course, we think about Saban and the football team first, probably the greatest college football coach in the history of the game. But that's a big athletic program. You've got athletes doing all <laughs> kinds of things. You've got men and women. Can you talk to us about what that's been like? Well, it's been a great, great situation for me. You know, growing up here in Birmingham, I went to I'm an alumni of the University of Alabama, and so I, I've always been a fan and a, and a you know a supporter of the program. Uh, I had the opportunity through Dr. Andrews to to take over and, and be part of the medical staff back in 2000. So this is my 19th year mm-hmm. with the university. So I've been through some down times in football, and of course I've been through the last 12 years with Coach Saban, which have been great. Um, but it's not just football; we take care of the entire university. So. Anything from the club, uh, soccer, men's, men's soccer team, rugby mm. team, all the way up to the through the college football team, and it's it's a pretty uh, I wouldn't call it a full time job, but it, but it takes a lot of my time up, but I enjoy it. It's you know I spend pretty much daily time on the phone with the athletic trainers at the university, discussing different athletes and injuries. I usually go down once a week to university, which is about 50 miles from Birmingham, uh, to see athletes of all sports, not just football players. I see the gymnasts and softball players and basketball and everybody else and and treat those athletes and and go through the process of covering them we also have a team of primary care sports medicine doctors that are Mm -hmm. non-surgeons that do a lot of what we do but they don't do the surgery that are down in tuscaloosa that take care of the day-to-day activities and cover all the the home events uh, besides football such as basketball baseball and gymnastics Uh, and it becomes uh, you know it can kind of encompass your life but I, i really i enjoy it that's why i got into sports medicine you know, if I wasn't covering the team, I'd still be at a lot of the games, and so mm-hmm. it's really been fun for me. Can you tell us what sports we think about football as being the most injury prone? But you know, for a while there, people were really talking about women's soccer as being a big issue. As you look across the entire range of college sports, where do you see the greatest injury risk and maybe the greatest opportunities for improvement? You know, I think overall, if you look at, at certain joints like the knee, for instance, an ACL injury, the highest risk of ACL injuries is certainly in women's soccer. Uh, women's basketball is probably the second, and mm. um, there there are a lot of preventative programs aimed at trying to change that with the way that uh, changing the way that the female athlete cuts or lands from a jump uh, that have had some success, but not not uh, land landmark type changes. Um, but overall, if you look at injury rates totally, gymnastics is probably the hardest on the body. Um, mm. You know, I think the the gymnastics programs start at a youth age with really high intensity training it's really long and consistent they they train uh, generally every day year round mm. and and when you get to the elite level of gymnastics the level 10 and the competitive college and olympic level uh there's a tremendous stress you can imagine the tumbling moves and all the the things that they do on the bars and 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 from a body standpoint it's very difficult in the joints and so many of our gymnasts have issues some require surgery some don't but it, it's probably the highest injury rate per exposure of any sport out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Kane, we're down just to the last couple of minutes. Can you tell us anything about about injury prevention, sports science? There's so many advances on tracking athletes and understanding the load better and training differently, heterogeneously within a team. What do, you, what do you think the opportunities are there, and how promising is it that we'll see some progress on injury prevention? Well, I think there's a lot of money and time being been spent on that because you know, at different sports, at the professional level, there's huge amounts of dollars lost every year based on injuries and so in baseball specifically 
know, there's a lot of research looking at, at uh, throwing mechanics, biomechanics of throwing, trying to decrease the stress on the shoulder and elbow. Uh, we have some new things like elbow braces that, that athletes can wear that can measure the forces across the elbow when they throw. We've looked at a lot of different issues with pitch counts and a lot of analytics that you guys talk about, trying to determine how do we prevent these high-level athletes from, from having a Tommy John surgery or having some kind of shoulder problem. In other sports like football and basketball, some of these GPS monitoring systems uh, we use at the University of Alabama a system called Catapult, which is a GPS-based system that the players wear in their T-shirt or their shoulder pads in every practice and every game. And we can monitor workload. We can monitor acceleration. We can determine if somebody's uh, fatigued or tired, if they're starting to, to lose their energy or lose their burst. And I think it really changes the training regimen to hopefully mm-hmm. prevent overuse in these mm-hmm. athletes. Mm-hmm. Terrifically interesting. Listen, Dr. Kane, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. We wish you the best of your work with your work down there in Birmingham. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. That was Dr. Lyle Kane. He's an orthopedic surgeon, um, does sports medicine down there with the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. He's also the team physician for the University of Alabama, calling in from Birmingham today, talking with this terrifically interesting work. That's just an interesting frontier for us in sports analytics and sports science. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.